This is a re-release of episode 133 due to my health-related hiatus. Try saying that five times fast. Could barely say it once. <laughs> there is so much in this one to, to learn from, but also take with a, a grain of salt. You know, I'll say the same thing about episode 150, which is re-released on Friday. Amara Gafur from ThoughtWorks shares a ton of insights and learnings from, you know, two and a half, three years of implementing data mesh at a very large scale with a client. There's a lot of incredibly useful information, especially about driving buy-in and understanding kind of uh, how to do data products and how to discover what data products you should actually create. So I think this one's very foundational and you'll learn a lot from it. But I also think where you want to do is not copy paste. You want to learn what what were the approaches they took to learn what would actually work specifically in this implementation rather than in all implementations? Because that's <laughs> what we're seeing is that doesn't work, that copy-paste type of model. A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about data mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left data stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start data mesh understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do data mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in today's episode? I interviewed Amara Gafour, Principal Business Analyst at ThoughtWorks, who has been working on a few client projects related to data mesh, including one for well over a year. Before jumping in, it's important to note that much of Amara's learnings come from an implementation in a 100K plus employee company split into 21 high-level domains. So the definition of domain in this episode revolves around that context of a very large business unit, not a two pizza team size subdomain. So some key takeaways or thoughts from Amara's point of view. Number one, 
There often is a hang-up around data work, especially relative to data mesh, where people want to get it all right, all perfect the first time. That's never going to work. Get something decent out there, test, and iterate. Perfect is the enemy of done. No bike shedding. Number two, if you don't look to change domains KPIs to align their operational work to data mesh, quote unquote, you won't prioritize it. You cannot prioritize it. Make it easy for domains to prioritize data mesh work if you want it to get done. Number three, this one seems like it's a little controversial. Source-oriented data products should not be made available to business users within the domain or to almost anyone in other domains, at least by default, as they are difficult to understand for anyone other than the highly data-literate people in the domain. This also removes some of the burden on the domain teams to have to create these source-aligned data products that everyone can understand. I don't think this is where we want to go in the long run, but I think it's an interesting approach to really consider when you're thinking about kind of your early stages in data mesh. There, This should be one that people actually really hold up and look at. Number four, quote unquote, don't make things you don't need yet, right? This has been something that's come up in a lot of episodes. Build data products for use cases you've identified. Think of the target business outcome and work backwards to create the necessary data products. A lot of people have said, no use case, no data. I'm kind of coming around on that as well. Number five, sometimes it seems like data mesh literature says get rid of many existing data roles. But really, when talking with Jamak, the, the people in those roles are subject matter experts in how the organization and or the domains do data. You want to leverage them as you evolve their roles, and they can pick up new skills related to data mesh, right? It's not that people are stuck in the title that, that they've had for however long. People can evolve. People can learn new things. Number six, when driving buy-in, be prepared to repeat yourself multiple times and then repeat yourself multiple times more. Learn to speak the language of the domain as well to drive buy-in with the business people. Number seven, look for the two most obvious use cases inside a domain. Supporting those use cases, you will need five to six foundational source-oriented data products that will support many, maybe most, of the use cases for that domain. It will often appear like you need many more source-oriented data products when you're looking at the different use cases, but when you zoom out, you will see you don't need nearly that many. You can just kind of slightly augment a um, an existing data product and just grow it a little bit so that you're not creating a ton of small data products. This is, again, something that is uh, very much up for debate, and I think it's an interesting thing to really look at. What does, you know, within domain-driven design, what what is a boundary, what should be a boundary, things like that. Number eight, typically using the median, use cases are powered or supplied by two consumer-oriented data products, and each consumer-oriented data product is powered by three to four source-oriented data products. This is, again, in Amara's experience. Number nine, 
They planned for a single approach to work with all domains to start implementing and, and having them contribute to data mesh. That proved to not work so well, and every domain needed its own process to really make it all work. There are commonalities, of course, but there isn't a cookie-cutter approach, unfortunately, to working with each domain. You're going to have to customize it as you move from, from team to team. Number 10, there may be pushback from both IT and the business side to having the business people collaborate closely in a data mesh implementation. But it's very important to overcome that. That collaboration with the business people is crucial to making data mesh work. They're the ones who actually have the business context. Number 11, business leaders may have, or at least believe they have, what they already need currently via shadow IT. It may be difficult to convince them to change their ways of working, you know, quote unquote, for the greater good. Be prepared for that pushback. And finally, number 12, when looking at driving buy-in with domains, look at how they are incentivized. Often short-term results are more rewarded than focusing on mid to long-term results. If next year's funding is based on this year's results, or if you know next year's funding is based on next quarter's results, right? They will focus on the near term. So figure out how to, to realign those incentives. There's a lot in here. It's one that I, I kind of recommend people maybe listen to and then read through the transcript as well. They're in Google Docs for a reason. So you can make a copy. You know, you can you can make your own comments. You can edit out what you don't want. You can delete that. But I think there's a lot of really interesting food for thought in here. I don't know that I would say do exactly all of these things. But this really opened my eyes to a lot of trends that I hadn't noticed I was seeing, and it made me rethink a lot. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Amara Gafur here, who is the principal business analyst at ThoughtWorks. Um, and she's been working with a, a, a few clients uh, around actually implementing data mesh and kind of on the ground working with people and working with so many different kind of domain types and domain owners and different people within the domains. And we're going to talk about uh, the different types of personas and how we can drive by and how we can recognize when we <laughs> might be getting the uh, right verbal feedback, but not the right uh, buy-in and, and all that type of stuff. Um, and we're going to talk about lots of other things, I'm sure, as we kind of weave through the conversation about data mesh. But, um, you know, with before we jump in, Amara, if you can give people a little bit of background on yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Hey, Scott. Thank you for having me. My name is Amara. I'm a principal business analyst, as you mentioned, at ThoughtWorks. I come with about 10 years of experience um, working primarily as a business analyst, but also mostly on data projects. And uh, 
yeah, I like to say I'm the person who's asking you uncomfortable why questions. And uh, yeah, driving towards outcomes. That's me. I love that kind of tight uh, compaction around that. And so I, I think let's let's start with kind of zooming out a little bit about driving buy-in. You know, uh, we've had multiple different people on that have talked about kind of an instance of driving buy-in. But when you're starting to think about this and you're starting to have the conversation, you know, how much do you think about everybody gets the same message versus let's package it. And then as you're starting to have that conversation, is it all one-on-one or are you trying to say, oh, we're going to talk to all the data engineers at once, or we're going to talk to all of the domain owners at once. And like, how do you think about even like strategically starting (laughs) the the driving buy-in process? So interesting that you asked that, Scott. Um, We started this journey, I think, more than a year ago. And in the beginning we did have like a structure. We almost thought of it as a as a template and we called it the onboarding template and we we treated it as one business domain at a time. And very optimistically, we thought like in six weeks, we'll get them started on their data mesh journey, get them going. And we had like this um, four-step program, I would call it. We had a concept called as uh, exploring the options, introducing them to data mesh. Then we had a workshop called as the Accelerate workshop. Um, it's the Data Mesh Accelerate workshop, and um, yeah, and then we had a process called as the Data Mesh Discovery, and you're basically trying to uh, zoom in from like a from a higher level or a broader perspective, introduce Data Mesh, identify the high level vision and use cases, and then in the discovery, identify the data products, and then get the teams running and building the data products. Um, yeah, needless to say, that was the plan and vision. Uh, didn't really work as per plan. Um, so yeah, we we do. I mean, interestingly, I had the privilege to be part of a team that was introducing Data Mesh to um, a wide variety of audience. And I don't know whether I mentioned this already, but 21 different domains in one company. So this is 21 different business units almost. And uh, yeah, so far we have we've introduced the topic and we are working with more than 13 or 14 different domains actually getting them onboarded, getting them ready, getting them to understand this. And every domain has been different. There are some commonalities that we see. But yeah, it's it's about understanding the needs of each domain as well. And, and when you think about domains, um, uh, we just had on uh, Jean-Georges uh, Perrin or JGP, and he was talking about their domains. Um, when they're thinking about them, there's only one uh, data quantum per domain because they're two pizza team domain. Yeah. I'm guessing that these domains are probably much larger than the two pizza team size. And how, how did you think about are you talking to within a domain? Are you talking to absolutely everybody or like just different for every single one and you have to have a different plan? Yeah. Almost always the first person that we're interacting with is an IT sponsor from a given domain. Like when I say domain, I don't really want to get into the definition of what a domain is. Yeah, I feel like that's an entire podcast by itself. Um, but let's let's say a bounded context. Let's say a business unit or a particular uh, area within a business unit. Um, and so almost always it starts with that one IT person who's leading, say, the data analytics or the data strategy for that um, business domain or the IT counterpart to that business domain. And from there, initially, 
a common approach has been that they like for us to work only with the IT side and we as data mesh experts come and push for we would like to talk to the business. And and that takes a while to jump over that fence to 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 convince IT that we are working on this together, but data mesh is not a technical solution only. And we do need business involvement in it. And at the same time, to convince business that they need to be involved in this, that this is going to impact them as well. And so when I say, what is the scope of people that we are talking to? Um, a rule of thumb would more, or something that has been common has been a couple of uh, uh, teams that are basically on ground working on analytical use cases. I would say the leads for the analytics itself, like data product, not data product, like product owners for these use cases, data strategists, um, and then the, the business counterparts for them. And that's the ground set that we usually start with. And wait, that was a really interesting insight as well that you talked about, um, that you have to convince both the business side and the IT side that you should be able to talk to the business. Is it that the business just isn't aware that they should be part of this or an IT is putting up in general is putting up the blockers or is it that both IT and business are like, you know, business is saying, well, what do I get out of this? Why should I even deal with this? You, you're the one that I, I ship the data to and you deal with it. And it's like, well, we're, we're changing the way we're doing it, but, or is it different literally in every domain? And you can't say that there is one very kind of common thread of that. No, there is a common thread. And I think this is a pattern that we have observed quite often. Um, and I, it's not to blame e any side, but it has been a difficult landscape for both business and IT. And in a nutshell, I would say the fact that there is so much demand for this data and there's a lot of waiting to get the data that you need. Um, so businesses basically spin off shadow ITs. And when they spin off shadow IT and now they're being asked to stop building up on their shadow IT and work together with the existing IT landscape to think of the bigger picture, that causes a lot of emotions. You're asking to give up what you already have, to give up functionality with data that you have, to stop for a second and and think for the lack of a better phrase, the be the greater good, you know? Um, and imagine you have, for example, an SAP solution, you have plugged it in and you have your dashboards, your tableaus running on it. As a business person, you have what you need. It's not serving anybody else. It's not reusable. And it has a lot of shadow IT that's expensive. But yeah, and, and so when it is an emotional problem that you're trying to solve them, right? You're, you're trying to get their buy-in and therefore you have to have empathy for people that you talk to. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting uh, insight. And, and it, it's kind of one of those that feels a little bit obvious once it's said out loud, but it's never said out loud in data stuff. So much of the data stuff is, is, is about ones and zeros. Is this correct or not? And it's not about the actually sharing the information and that empathy angle. That's that's part of why I, you know, really started to to dig into data mesh was that it was the first time I've seen like an IT approach that was like, it it feels like it's empathy first. Like it like, you know, Jamak's old um, presentation uh, where she used to have the the figure with the three different buckets. And it was, you know, the kind of um, the software engineers and the data producers and they're happy and then you've got the data consumers and they've got kind of the flat face of like, meh, it could be better, could be worse. And you got the data engineers of just grumpy faces because they're stuck in between these things. And I think that that empathy angle is really important. And, and as you said, like none of this stuff or, or 
a lot of the people that are coming on are talking about some of of how they're approaching data mesh is a greenfield, but you, you don't have a greenfield business, right? And so you have to continue on with what you've got and you have to do slow transition and you have to let people understand that we're going to we're going to make this better for you. We're going to make it so that when you do have a new question, you're going to actually be able to get to it and that we're going to keep the requests off of you. I, that's something that I would love to 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 dig into a little bit of of people data producers are so afraid of okay, you're giving me the responsibility. That means I'm going to get an in a flood of requests and I can't handle all of these cuz we haven't given them the capability and the understanding and you know the tooling and all that stuff to actually handle that. So like how does that conversation go? <laughs> so I think even before it comes or at least ground reality what we are facing is that we are even a step away from um data producers realizing that this is responsibility that's coming onto them. Um a step before that is the fact that um there's a concept of um, immediate returns, that is probably if I have an asset and I'm building a dashboard on it, I'm able to see it. And then there is um, midterm to long-term returns that are happening when you're investing into building the right platform capabilities that work with uh, the data products as such. You're building in your computational governance. You know, This is investment that is needed. I, and, and there's a patient uh, angle that goes with it, you know. Um, so even before we are able to get to what are your responsibilities as a data producer for your data, it's more about um, I don't have time to wait for this because I'm judged and I'm basically getting my round of funding at the end of this year based on some business outcomes that I show. And I have competition and other companies that are already perceived to be using all this data and are on their data-driven decision journey already. and me as part of this big company that um, historically has already been at the forefront of technology and at the forefront of uh, innovation is unable to keep up. So there is no incentive to wait and actually um, in build it the right way or to take on more responsibility apart from your own day-to-day -day job or you don't really, you're not even provided with the kind of resources for it. So even if you do, for example, have an IT team who's or, or basic users um, who are capable of doing this in the, in the given domain at the, on the business side, um, they are overwhelmed and they are not, at this point of time, I don't think they are going to be rewarded for doing this well yet because we haven't yet gotten data mesh into a business objective, like a business goal that's driven top down from the management. Yeah, and, and I think, so Scott Hawkins in his episode, um, He's at ICV, who is also working with uh, ThoughtWorks, and, and it's um, their their head of their data org did well, one of the best episodes of any podcast I've ever listened to. So I, I recommend people to listen to that pragmatism in practice uh, episode. Um, but Scott was talking about like literally for incentivization, you go and you change people's KPIs, right? You, you let, you, 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 this isn't done out of the goodness of people's hearts, right? This is not something where um, this, it, it can be that this is extra work. So we have to give them the extra resources to take care of it. And we also have to give them the incentivization 
And so much of this is the data team going, nope, you now own this, right? And that those are the ones, those are the implementations where data mesh is failing because you're not having that empathetic like conversation with somebody and saying, why, why is this going to benefit you in the short term as well as the long run? And that's where like um, modern data stack gets things right in a way because it is just it's not it's shadow IT in the light where where we're celebrating the fact of getting something into production very, very quickly, even though it's yeah. built on incredibly shaky ground and it's not built for the long term. And it's, it, it you know, it, it devolves and is just creates all sorts of things. But it's like you got something into production and it had value and it had return right away. Um, and so, you know, telling them that, hey, in a year, we'll have a setup where just as fast as you're doing your shadow IT, we'll still have that ability to put things into production and it will be um, it, it will be wonderful and it'll be supported and it'll be all of that. But you've got to wait a year and you've got to, in the meantime, you've got to put some effort into this. It's, it's a difficult conversation. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm with you on that and which is why for us, it's always been that important. And I would say almost... Um, equally important to actually driving the technical stream um, is to drive what we call as the operating model stream. And I, I, I agree so much with what you said right now, because if you don't get those KPIs up there for the business, um, then you will not work towards it or you can you you will not prioritize it, right? Or you cannot prioritize it either. It's not even up, you will not, you cannot. And therefore, the first aspect is to get some form of measure of metric on your um, way of prioritization, whether it's in lean value tree, is it an OKR, I, whatever is your way of prioritizing your portfolio, this metric has to be up there. Um, on ground reality, I don't even care whether it's a good metric at this point. Is it a leading, lagging? I honestly don't care. If it's something as simple as saying number of data products published, number of data products in on production or on their way, on Colibra, something as a catalog. It's a way to start the conversation and to get teams going. I think a, something that I struggle with with teams or people that are even reading data mesh or understand so much about it is, yes, we have to do everything right and let's do it once. Let's take the time to understand it and, and then we're going to do it perfect. But just like you said, that's not true. It's not going to be that way. It has to evolve. You have to get going with your first MVP approach, the, the very basic minimum, to start building that ground for it. And then once you've gotten that mindset, then you start thinking, hmm, does number of data products really matter? No, it doesn't, you know. But does it get the team started on that journey? Yes. And and for me, that there's a term for it like bicycle shedding. Stop debating everything without actually focusing on the issue at hand. And I think that's 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 an issue very often we get lost into. Um, and there are many reasons for it because traditionally in big organizations, you have entire departments that exist whose job it is to debate these things and define standards and guidelines around it, right? And so, and that's traditionally important, but it shouldn't hinder teams from doing what they need to do. And that's the entire aspect of data mesh, you know, giving that power of freedom back within the domain where it makes sense for them to make these decisions as well. Well, it, it's kind of like when you look at the software engineering model and why people have moved from monolith to microservices is because 
the cost of change was so high. The the inability to change quickly was was just a a killer. And the cost of getting something wrong in in a when you're doing your data warehouse setup yeah. was very very high. It was very difficult to make those changes. And we're we're creating a a way a framework where those costs of change is much, much lower and it's much quicker to measure, is this right and isn't this, and that we iterate. But exactly what you're talking about, the idea of iteration, when you talk with with people that have been doing this for a long, especially when you talk with um, you know, 20, 30 plus year veterans of people who've been on just the data and analytics side, and they're like, how how could you ever think about doing this? Because it's just so monstrous to think about this and it's going to create all these silos and all this stuff. And it's like, we can iterate towards, and and that word iterate just, I think, sends chills up and down their spines. No, I hear you. But um, I mean, again, um, how do I phrase this? It's easier for people who started their their traditional journey or they've started their career in an agile setup to think, okay, what's the big deal to do it in like in a hypothesis driven way? What's the big deal about trying and if it fails? But also we we recognize our privilege of being able to fail, right? And if I'm failing, that's not a bad thing. It's just learning and moving on, picking up and going. And and like you mentioned, the cost of failure was so high for our previous generations and our previous technologies that this was no longer a feasibility to actually fail. Failure was not an option. And and with data mesh, we're trying to say, hey, actually do that. Take a second, step back. Let's start with whatever we think is the data product that is needed for your use case. Let me give you an example. Very, very often, we find that in domains, we we spend a humongous amount of time to decide which use case and which data product should we start building and what's the exact right use case that will bring us the value. After doing this, identifying data products for 10 plus domains now, um, I can almost with certainty say that if you pick the two most obvious use cases in your domain and break down the data products, you will most likely identify at least five or six of the foundational source data products that are relevant to this domain. You will identify them irrespective of any use case. So start building that MVP version of those data products with a given use case in mind. And nobody says stop the the analytics aspect of looking further what other use cases and how do they feed into this particular uh, data product. It doesn't, I mean, it also encourages you, therefore, to start looking what, where, where is the reusability aspect of these data products across other domains as well, right? And, and that's what I'm saying. Don't stop to find the, the exact constellation of your data product that fits perfectly in your domain and cross domain, because then you're no longer building a data product. That's not at all what's happening. You're just trying to build yet another shorter or smaller data lake, perhaps, you know, in, with the picture framework of calling it a data product. And that's exactly what we don't want you to do. Yeah, and I think talking with Jamak, uh, um, she kind of, I don't know if data product is is the phrase that she would want to use if she could go back because data product and data as a product end up getting conflated and all that versus the data quantum because the data mm-hmm. quantum is such an Honestly, it's an obnoxious term, right? Like at least in my in my book, it's an obnoxious, it's a ridiculous term, but it, it makes it 
very clear exactly what you're talking about. And it's like, this is a manifestation of how you share information with each other. That's it. Like, yeah. like stop trying to make it the, the thing that shares the insights versus it is the thing that enables you to drive more insights or drive these use cases, drive like that thing. It, it's not the end all be all. It is the thing that drives what drives business value. Can I just highlight the fact and which I love it that when you were talking about the data product, you even drew a hexagon with your fingers, you know, so you were that specific about it. And just earlier today, uh, a colleague and I insisted that in in, in internal communication that it, it has to be a hexagon because we don't want it. I mean, it was such a simple, minute thing, but we were like, no, because we are answering this question all the time. A data asset is not a data product. Data as a product is not a data product. Exactly what you're saying, right? And and it has, like, I feel like there are a couple of articles that can be written about, hey, these are the differences. You know, this is not the same. And that's important to understand as well. Yeah, Xavier Gumara-Ragol um, wrote a, a really good thing. And we had a, an episode that talked a lot about that. But I think like the the podcast network is literally the data as a product podcast network. It's not data mesh radio. It's not it's that I think that's a a bigger and, and broader topic. But um if we could um kind of uh just because I think we could we could just exchange context and 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 uh and just uh, chat all day. But if we can kind of go back to we've talked about a lot of the emotional state that you have to kind of understand of who, who you're talking to and what, but like, let's talk about kind of the different things, you know, obviously not get overly specific, but what are some of the the ways that you've seen that's worked around driving by and what are some of the personas that you're seeing? Right. Um, and, and how, how you can work with those, right. You're going to have people that are, uh, loving data mesh and they think data mesh is the thing when it's like, no, it's just a way for us to get to business value. Like, don't don't be too much of a convert of the the church of data mesh, which Jamak is running away from. I'm running away from the idea of the church of data mesh, but there are people that want to build it versus the ones that are super, super skeptical versus the ones that tell you that they're on board and really aren't <laughs> all of those things. So can we we start with a, a couple of different personas and how you how that's manifested and how you'd work with. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay, so most of the personas that we run into, and I think the typical one to start with is actually the the sponsor or the IT sponsor, I would say. This is the person who's heard about Data Mesh at a forum, on an online blog, or heard a talk, gone to a conference, has bought into the idea, has typically um, experienced problems in the data space before, has struggled and, felt, and feels that pain and wants to work with, with, with Data Mesh, you know. And this is a supporter, and this is the person who's trying their best. Um, this person is also generally uh, has some, traditionally we see it, it's usually either a data architect or a data analytics lead, traditionally on the IT side. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, the sponsor generally is also building some social capital or has social capital, but I would say it's limited. To the point of this, the social capital extends a lot in the IT space or in the IT sector, um, and a couple of people on the business side. And so there is only that far you can get uh, with this persona. But this persona is critical to get you to start talking. Um, the next 
set of people or the group of personas we run into is, I would say, on the business side, where you do hear, like after a, a first couple of conversations, you do get the support of business owners. Well, they do start understanding what you're talking about. Um, and then you, the moment you start pushing a little bit on, hey, let's talk about your business goals. Let's try and see what, how are you achieving? How is data helping you achieve your business goals? The uh, This persona is supportive, but is not incentivized or does not really have the time to spend on this as well. Um, so this persona requires a lot of uh, empathy and a lot of support, I would say. You're trying to make their life better. You're trying to help them achieve their business goals using data uh, and, and getting their buy-in. And that's a persona we often run into as well. Um, we have the personas who listen um, and don't take a stand. They don't say yes, they don't take no. And they think data mesh is yet another trend, which very likely is as well if we don't actually do what needs to be what what needs to be done with it as well, right? And 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 these are the sideline personas. They're just willing to see which way does the tide turn and they will go along that way. And you just have to face that. Then there are the personas that basically say yes to everything but and then still do exactly what they want to do, right? And 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 that's just personas that you have to navigate as well. Um, my biggest empathy or the personas that I feel very strongly for are uh, the product owners who are building these dashboards or building these analytical solutions are desperate for the data as well and are just working so hard to make it happen. And they want to work with you. They just don't know where, where they're supposed to get the resources or the time because they have their deliverables, they have their backlogs, and here we are asking them to rethink the foundations upon which everything is built. And these are the product owners and the, the data engineers, the business analysts, ground level implementing them. And, and they have my biggest empathy, honestly, because you can really see the pain they're facing day in and day out. And this is, this is a hard time. I mean, people who are on LinkedIn and watching things, people are getting laid off. Um, but the data analytics industry in big companies has been facing cut layoffs as well. You would think we're investing in data, but we're not investing um, in the people that are driving this. These are small teams. These are not humongous teams sitting even in big corporations. Yeah, I, I think that's an, an amazing kind of trend of, of when you start to dig in and you find out that these big, big companies and it's like, oh, yeah, we're we're in charge of all analytics for the company and we're, you know, 30 people. And it's like you're a 50,000 person company. And you have 30, you know, so there is shadow analytics or shadow IT throughout the thing, but okay, you've only got 30 people that whose main job is focused on, anal what? That, that makes literally no sense. Like, I mean, maybe data isn't that valuable to them. And so then they're not a good target for data mesh. If you can't have the leverage off of it, you know, I, I kind of hate the idea that every company, every company should be a data company and every company should do data mesh and all those, those kind of trends. No, if yeah. it's not, if it's not going to provide value, like what drives business value, but what, what, what have you found then? So, you know, the, the, the sponsors. Can I maybe add one more? Because yeah. I do want to give out a mention or a call out. I think another persona that I would like to highlight here is are the people who actually built um, the data lakes that existed before. And the data lake was a solution to the warehouse. And um, these people really, I, I can see the blood, sweat and tears that they've made to make the lake happen, you know. And just like in the future, we will look back and know there were certain things that we didn't think about when we did the data mesh. 
That's exactly today, given the circumstances, we look at the lake. And um, for people that work 30, 20, 30 years, decades of their lives building these things to be said, <clears throat> we would like to retire this and start with something new. It's not personal, right? But again, it is personal and it feels personal. And so these personas also fight you very hard along the way because that is um, what they have built, ground up. And therefore, working with them rather than against them is what I would really like to uh, recommend for anybody who's starting on the data mesh journey. Don't alienate people who basically build stuff ground up. There are common solutions along the way. And there are solutions if you just take the time to listen to somebody and say, yes, and this is the pain and this is the problem. And this is how we could actually solve it going up. Like don't barge in with, as you called it, like the data mesh church or temple or or the mosque of, of doing things, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a, a good uh, way way to really think about this. And and some people are also worried about, you know, change causes pain, change causes fear. People, especially right now, you know, the uh, economy is pretty shaky and things. So how do we think about having these this evolution, but that you can bring people along and that people aren't worried that, you know, somebody who's like, we see this with a lot of the data warehouse, you know, people that love data warehouse, a lot of it, a lot of the, the pushback is just, at least from my view, just fear and, and, and thrashing out at somebody saying, Hey, this thing doesn't work. And it's like, so you're saying everything I've done for this long or everything that I've learned this long, which to me is just weird, but my brain works differently where, I can just learn about new things and it's just like, oh, I'm just going to go off in this weird and that's the positive of ADHD. But um, how have you worked with these different ones to alleviate that fear? And and you know, maybe we can talk about the different personas and, and helping to leverage them and drive their careers well, right? Like we could talk with the IT supporter, like how how have you paired with them to drive things forward? And then we can go persona by persona. We can think about as well how we alleviate. I mean, yes, I'm asking you to answer, you know, kind of the the big question of the universe and everything. So the forty two. So the the first part, I think, the first part of your question where you asked, um, especially for people who have the fear of change and the fear of loss, you know, and how do you work with them? Um, when you read. Um, most blogs or articles about data mesh and a data product team, I would say traditionally there is no role for many of the existing roles. Um, I would disagree. For somebody who understands the landscape of data as it exists today and how uh, it's basically under- is able to navigate the, the, the way things are structured in the organization, um, such a person is a subject matter expert on the existing data landscape. And if they need to be part of teams or domains in the data space as SMEs or as coaches or as guides, um, they need to be re- they need to remain as part of these teams. Along the way, we enable them to actually pick up the skills as well that is needed. Everybody is learning data mesh. Nobody knows data mesh right now, and therefore they too are along the journey. So, the way I would like, or the way we try to approach this, is that we empower the people along the way. Nobody is redundant. You have knowledge that's critical. And that knowledge needs to be channeled in the right direction going forward as well. And that's how I see it, at least. 
this is challenging. It definitely is challenging. But we are actually doing that ground on the ground. We are defining roles for people who are existing in spaces and offices that will not hold traditionally the new uh, role or, or doesn't exist in a data mesh framework right now. But even what we think of as a data mesh framework, it, this is a hypothesis, right? We are trying it out now. And as we are doing it, we are figuring it out along the way as well. And so for me, that is what I have to say to people who fear this change. Your knowledge is important and it stays in-house as well. For the second persona about how do you make people successful, um, I'm. let me put it this way, before I started this role and working on DataMesh, I was probably super allergic to making um, slide decks or PowerPoint presentations. Um, and I, I'm still, I just, it, it, it breaks my heart every single time. Uh, but you do recognize that sometimes this is the language of the corporate world. And if you have to get a message across and if you have to write a playbook, a guideline, a template, a PowerPoint deck, you do it. You do it so that the message can get across and you do everything to make your IT sponsors successful. At the end of the day, you are trying to make them successful and the more people you can get on board. Um, it's about establishing uh, communities of practice. It's about establishing um, the forums, in, uh, involving yourselves in the forum, making sure, uh, for example, existing roles, all the existing leads of the platforms that exist there are actually communicating and coming together at these forums, driving this change there, being present there and presenting this or enabling your core stakeholders to present this message as well. And it took us months before people were actually listening. Aya, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, fitness functions, that makes sense. And it, it's not going to happen the first time, but that's how you enable your people to actually be successful. Well, and I think that I, I understand kind of bringing back a little bit of what you said earlier of you data people want to get it right the first time. And it's not necessarily even perfectionist. It's the, the cost of getting it wrong has been so high. And so much of this is iteration, even in the communication and like teaching people. It's, it's, it feels really derogatory or, or kind of, um, I don't know the exact word that I want to use, but kind of like, um, like you're looking down on somebody or whatever, when you're like, we're going to teach you how to communicate with each other. But at the same point, we need to because this this is two people who have, you know, exchanged information via the, the data team and the data team didn't really understand exactly either side. And we're like, OK, we're going to pull the data team out of that conversation even and we're going to make sure that you're communicating with each other. So let's talk about what that actually means. And then once we get to that understanding we can manifest the way that you're actually trying to drive that communication, that that thing into the data quantum, right? And that's where you're like, literally, we're going to do the, once you figure out what we're actually trying to do, yes, the, we're going to work with you to make sure that that part gets done. But we need to talk about what are you actually trying to do? Why is this a value? What What's important here? And like that, hasn't been a conversation that people have had historically. It, it's, it's again, it sounds crazy, but like, yeah. how have you, you know, are your IT sponsors or do their heads kind of explode that they have to move into being much more of the conversationalist and driving these things instead of like, I, I just want to do my data thing and I just want to do it right. 
So um, I'll give you a quick example before I tell you how we actually did it or are doing it. Um, the example is in one of the domains we work for, um, in a manufacturing, when, you, when you're in a manufacturing world, for example, there is a, a KPI called as on-time and full delivery. This is like the most foundational KPI that exists in manufacturing. And it was interesting because um, there is an industry definition for it, and then there is a business definition for it, and there's an IT definition for it, and then there is like the actual data analytics definition for it. And solutions for this on-time info already exist, multiple of them, multiple analytic solutions, the dashboards, the KPIs, they're actually being published, you know, for different production lines. And business was constantly annoyed that analytics keep, there are multiple analytics teams that keep spin, spinning off and keep asking for funding for building this on time and full, while at the same time, the business keeps claiming we don't have this data and therefore we cannot actually deliver this. And so when Data Mesh came in, the first most important data product identified, consumer-oriented data product identified, was on time and full. And they're like, what are you talking about? We have like 10 of these solutions already, right? And it was ridiculous because, and that's where it was about the communication. It wasn't until we took the data team out of the picture and it was the business and the regular IT and everybody getting to the same picture and talking about what what is what do you actually mean about this? And I'm simplifying it, of course, here, um, that they understood, okay, the basic foundation of what we want or how we understand this terminology is completely different, which is where I circle back to a domain definition in data mesh, why it makes so much sense. It's only within a domain that this language is understandable to each other. If the IT department is sitting somewhere completely different and doesn't understand the context of this, of course, they're not going to be able to build the right solution for it, right? And these are the small intricacies of solutions, you know, that, that cause big damage in the bigger picture. How are we up actually approaching this? And maybe I'll just finish this thought, is that we we think of it as a three stream of work almost like we think of them as three different streams um and one of it is called as the operating model stream uh, the product stream and then the technology stream and then the operating model stream is exactly that we are literally building the cadence for it and business to communicate and talk to each other prioritize together and actually what data products are going to be built in the data in the product stream are basically how are they tied to the goals, IT goals and business goals. And that's all the aspect of this operating model stream, which is so important to us. And the product stream itself then is just identifying those data products, making sure they're actual data products. The technical stream is about actually building it and the data engineering that goes behind it. And so each one of these streams for us holds like equal weightage. And when we say build something or start something, we say do MVP thinking that cuts across all three streams. MVP for governance, MVP for operating model, product, and technology. Every one of them has to be addressed, not just your data product, not just your platform, not just the governance aspect. There was one little sentence in there that is is something that could be a massive red flag. And and I don't, you know, it's the the thing that that destroys data mesh or whatever. But I, I fully don't agree with it. I think it's silly, but it, it is something that that's kind of interesting and there's two different aspects to it. So what you said was the this concept can't be understood outside the domain. So when we start to think about data products, one, 
when you start to think about the use cases, when you're going into a domain, are you typically looking for the initial user is the domain? Because a lot of people, what they want to go into is a domain and say, you need to start sharing your data with everybody else versus like, hey, let's let's provide you value for your own domain first. And then the other aspect of that is how do we like I've, I've created this thing that I haven't really wrote, written about and, and, and really fleshed out that well. It's called the SCAE. And it's the Scott's confusing ass equation. <laughs> it's how much value is derived from each data product themselves versus the interactions between the data products, those connections. And that, not every data product needs to be interoperable with every other data product mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But how do we think about those cross domain aspects? So two big, big questions. But like, how do you think about when you're finding those initial use cases and, and you're looking for, you know, we think about the MVP. I really like that three streams model of like, don't just create the data because the data doesn't do anything, right? Or we're, we're just going to create the, the, the technical aspect of the capability to do the, the data. And we're not actually versus like, how is this going to actually be used? How is it going to fit into the actual day-to-day -day operations? But like, so the two questions again were, when you're looking at finding these these data products or data quantum or whatever, like, do you first start to look at the initial user is the domain? And then the second would be, uh, how, how can we set ourselves up to share our business context? Because that is such a difficult thing. And, and so many people that come on are talking about one-to-one -one, um, communication and exchange of context. So how do you scale that enterprise wide? Yeah. Um, so for the first question, from experience, I can tell you that of the 10 plus domains that we are, we are working with on this journey, I would say a good 70% are building data products first, which are beneficial to their own domains. Um, so they're establishing or want to work on data products that are more beneficial to them. So I think we are still in that first stage of data mesh where we are building the foundational data products. Um, we've had two or three domains that are very, very much um, dependent on need this data from other domains. And therefore, it was, it was more about facilitating a communication between two domains to build it the right way as well for both of them. It was quite important for both the domains, you know. Um, and in that case, we actually, it was more of a cross-domain aspect of it. Um, when we speak about data that cannot be understood outside the domain. I'm talking about these foundational source data products that are so specific to the given domain and in most likelihood, hold value within the domain itself. Like it makes sense in this context. And that's when combinations of these source data products become what we call as the consumer-oriented data product or outward-facing data product. And this is generally what holds business language, and this is what can be used easily by business users of the given domain or other domains as well. And this consumer-oriented data product is so much more valuable to other domains, and that is what we call in, in, for, the, for the company that where we are implementing this right now, we are facilitating it through a, a forum called as the cross-domain forum. And we have two of these. We have the cross-domain architectural forum and the cross-domain portfolio forum. And it's the portfolio forum where we are actually not, we are establishing a cadence 
for not only displaying or or sharing information on the data products interactions that exist today within the domain, but also where are the cross-functional use cases that that evolve from here. And usually this cross-domain portfolio forum is quite valuable because every domain wants information from the other domain or they have needs for data outside the domain, which is exactly where they don't have control or don't have access. And there is a lot of value. And I think that is phase two of implementing or scaling this data mesh journey as well, where we are kind of enabling this cost functionality as much as possible. And I think that's a journey I would love to maybe discuss with you on a different podcast because when we have that experience, I'm going to come back to you and let you know how that went. Yeah, because I, I, I would, I mean, I, I even struggled to write down any notes about that because my brain was just like, I have no idea how to even like conceptualize how to share this because it is, there, there are kind of a few different patterns. I, I asked the question of what is the genesis of a data product for you? And, and so it sounds like what you're saying is the genesis of, of a data product kind of depends, but it's like that you have a use case and it's typically a, um, it's typically a combined from multiple other upstream data products. So you have, you have to create both the source aligned data products and then you create the, okay. even, even within the domain itself yeah. that they're going to create like, Hey, we'll, we'll create this source. We'll, we'll do that. Um, there, there are some that are, doing this pattern that I'm going to start to talk about a little bit. Um, there will probably be something already on the podcast that um, for listeners of, about data Shrek, which mm -hmm. is so Shrek, you know, the movie, I'm assuming you've seen it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he has a swamp, but he loves his swamp. He has a purposeful yeah. swamp. And so what people are doing is creating uh, a thing where they're putting in all of their data so people can see what data might be on offer but they're not doing it with quality level where where people can mm -hmm. work into product. Mm -hmm. You have to have a high trust environment because exactly what you talked about earlier as somebody finds value, they try and put it into production immediately versus how do yeah. I how do I like actually move towards that in a reasonable manner? Um and and but it I'm also seeing some people uh that are and and that that creates some really interesting use cases, because most of them are cross-domain use cases, but then that means you kind of have almost proto source-aligned data products, like small-ish, that are only designed to support that one use case. And so then that kind of can create a thing where your mesh is littered with lots of these little tiny data products. And well, I'm not seeing that, Scott. I'm actually not seeing that. What I'm seeing is that a use case identifies some smaller source-aligned data products and some consumer-oriented ones. And the second use case or the third use case almost always meshes back into the source aligned data products that we've already identified. Sure, the boundary might grow a little bigger. And when we start, we start off with and think about it for in a visual context. Imagine all your source data products are on your left side and consumer on the right. There are like 20 or 30 on the source side and two on the consumer. And as we start to actually look through it and see whether does it make sense? Does it actually have a job? Does it have a business value? Does it does it make sense? Is it is it existing for a reason? And then they start shrinking and you realize, ah, uh, 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 we don't need this many. We can actually trace it back down to five and six and we don't need to populate all data into it, which is, and for the love of God, 
please, nobody tell me it needs to be source of truth of anything. Nothing is a source of truth of anything, you know. It's all evolving. It's all iterative. And this is the first version of it to satisfy the first couple of use cases. And experience is showing me or what working with these different domains is showing me is that it almost always goes back to the first set of identified source data products and a few more get added to it. That's about it. I have... I mean, this is so fascinating. I've got so many questions that, that, but like one that I would ask you is then what's the genesis of a use case? Because I've been talking to people and, and like they're, they're, so we talked about kind of what you're talking about of, of it all starts from a use case. There's kind of the, the data Shrek thing where people can really like figure out what it is and, and maybe come up with their own use case. And then there's the ones that are just saying domains put out all of your source data products and then the use cases will come. And pretty much everybody doing that thus far haven't had good uh, or, or as as much consumption as they wanted. And I think that makes actually some sense because the yep. domains don't really know exactly what people want. But like when you think about use cases, where are we are you giving people access to the source data products that aren't in the same domain, people that are data spelunking and going out there and trying to find what information is out there that I could combine into a use case or like? No, I would, I would let me say it. So um, think of it as three layers. So the source-oriented data products that are much closer to source systems, right? And then combinations of them become what we call as the consumer-oriented data products. And the consumer-oriented data products are exposed to other domains. So when they are coming in to look into what, what is there in this domain that I can possibly pick up, that you look at the consumer-oriented data products. A use case can be made up of one or more of consumer-oriented data products, and each consumer-oriented data product can be made up of more source-oriented data products. So it's a one use case, maybe two consumer-oriented data products, and each consumer-oriented data product maybe three or four source. So that's the hierarchy that's kind of evolving right now. That that's so interesting because most of the way that I've talked to people. They've assumed that everybody should have access to all these source oriented and and maybe data scientists for like some spelunking things or yeah. or kind of what you talked about, those subject matter experts of the data land. Yeah. I'm starting to talk about a data Sherpa of like somebody that you go to in the domain and they're like, here's all the things that we've got. Like, let's talk about what we could make for this. Like, what are you trying to achieve? But there's a lot of people who think that you should just be able to go into the catalog and just find a bunch of information and create a use case from it instead of start from the use case and, and say, do we have the information to support this? So I hear what you're saying. It's something that we've been actively discouraging as such. That's really good insight, right? Because if it's not working, that's the type of thing we need to know, right? Yeah. And yeah, and I'm actively disencouraging it or we're encouraging people to actually think business first, right? So what is the business goal you're trying to achieve? What is the hypothesis that I currently have to achieve that? How is data going to help me? And then work backwards to see what data do I need? Now, if you work backwards and see that uh, you need data from a different domain and the existing consumer-oriented data products are not providing you that data, then sure, ask the product owner or the domain owner there, hey, do you have a source data product that could help me with that? Or can you have an extra output port on an existing one which will help me expose this aspect of it, you know? Um, I'll go back on that. Or maybe you just have another data product that's ex that is exposed. But I 
don't like the idea of actually just exposing all source-oriented data products, but because it almost, that's when, um, isn't that what we've always been doing? Let's take all the data that's available and put it together on a dashboard and see what works and what doesn't without actually consciously thinking about it as well. And that's when domains have this fear of we don't want to expose all our data because we don't know who will use it and how it will be misused. So it's no longer a conscious decision. We haven't tried it. I won't say I, I cannot speak to you with, as an expert here at all, but I can say that is something we have been trying to say, be more mindful and purposeful about why you need the data rather than it's there, let me play around with it. Unless you're a data scientist, then sure, probably, yeah, you know. And, and that's where the, I think there's there's a lot of things at play here. So Eric Broda talked about exactly, or and, and Sarita Bax especially talked about this, of uh, domains are much more willing to share their information if they know exactly what the use case is. So you don't just post it up and say, anybody can come use it because it could be non-compliant use or it could be very compliant use. But yes. How do we get to a world where people can understand the art of the possible? And it sounds like you're saying that at least to start, people start from the, I have a possibility. Can I get to that possibility versus I can see everything that could be on offer? Not that I can get to the data itself, but that could be on offer. And that I'm going to create a use case from that, that that second way you're, you're discouraging that for now and maybe that's maybe that's a you know year five type of thing of like hey we've really figured out like how to do this and, and how to put data out much more quickly when it's compliant and maybe the reason scott that i discourage it is from my experience of of enabling people to go down this journey is um this concept of let's make one source of data first let's get all these 360 solutions right that's exactly the thought process if I have all the data available to me, then I will be able to see a pattern or I'll be able to make an insight. Then I can think of use cases for it. First, let us get all the data. And this is actively what we've been trying to change people's thoughts about because rather than thinking, if I had everything, then I would use it. Think about, imagine you had it all, what would you actually use it for? And let's test that because it's expensive, right? It, it takes a lot of time, effort, investment to actually build this here and use it as well. So don't make things that you don't need yet. And that's one of the reasons perhaps why I feel I would I don't encourage it yet. But if people can convince me otherwise, then I'm willing to listen. I think if we can get to a very, very high trust environment to create a low cost way to play around with the data around that, like, hey, let's 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 expose a little bit of data and it's not very high quality, it's not cleaned, it's yeah. not whatever. But like, let's figure out if there is something here. Like this is uh, again, where like creating a space for play, right? Of like data play of creating a way that's a high trust environment where again, people don't try and take it and immediately put it into production because then the domains are going to go, I have to do a bunch of work to enable that, or it's going to start falling apart and you're going to be throwing tickets on me and all that. So we have to have the high trust environment to be able to do that. And right now we haven't figured out how to really share our data all that well. So let's yeah. let's put that off to the side. I, I like the the feedback that you're getting because these are conversations that have come up. Uh, Marisa Fish in her episode talked about kind of the 
known knowns, the known unknowns, the unknown knowns, and the uh, unknown unknowns. And I can't remember which was known unknowns or unknown knowns, but like, oh, I have this data and I don't know what questions to ask it. You're, you're saying that that's kind of been something that we've always tried to do. And as somebody myself who's very curious and, and can derive insights from poking at yeah. red data, great, but it's because I already know the data quality and the source. And if we don't have that, it can't yeah. get ourselves into trouble. And we're not, we're now mature enough to be able to do that right now. And that's okay to, to, to say, hey, we, we really can't do this in a safe business manner right now. So let's put it off. I, I like the fact that you're kind of taking a stance, even though you, you might want, not want to be like, oh, I, I am taking a stance. You cannot do this. But like you're, you're putting very, very good framing around this stuff because you've seen where it's going wrong and where it's, where it's going right. So I really like this, this uh, amount of context around what you've seen and what you've done. It's, You've done so much of this. You've been on the ground. What? Yeah, I must say probably like after a year and a half, and that's just on ground exactly on the data mesh aspect of it, not counting the previous experience, but the the sheer number of 360 solutions. Like I, every, every, I mean, you would think somebody has said that, oh, somebody probably already built a 360 solution, right? No, it's still the 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 solution of choice. It's the data analytical solution of choice. Let's bring, bring in some form of 360 solution. And they don't work. And in most cases, they don't work. Nobody's happy. If they were happy, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And just the pain around and then people who want to use it and and, and changes that they need or data they needed or in the format that they needed with the SLOs that they need, basically, right? That doesn't exist in these solutions. And the pain is not just in the data. It's in the in the format that we need it, in the freshness of the data, in the quality that we need. And when we then just open it up, and that's what worries me, that we might be taking two steps back before we have established ourselves and taking two steps front. And that is something I would like to maybe avoid. And, and, I, and I talked to somebody around a, a customer 360, and they they actually said that they supported it. And I and and I'm I'm wary of it because I think a customer 360 is difficult. But most of the time, when people think about a 360, they're talking in two dimension, but they actually mean a sphere. And that yeah. means that you have to be able to slice through this sphere. And, and have you know the circle that you want from any angle that you want, and it doesn't it doesn't work because you're you've got way too much. Versus, we have a very specific user and a very specific use case, and we're just putting the information in front of them. Sure, we're going to call it customer three hundred and sixty, but it's really not. It's 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 just like the use case around. Here's the seven pieces of information that you yeah. want. Let's combine that into a use case. <laughs> still okay with that if you're conscious about it but if you're going to spend three years and i'm not exaggerating if you're going to spend three years to ensure you've pulled every piece of information that possibly exists about this customer into this 360 solution without thinking about the return on investment then that's when i start having a problem about it you know like in in many the average duration of many such projects that i've seen on ground is three to five years and that's not a joke yeah it's well, and that's because they're trying to serve everyone, every use case, right? Yeah. And so it's it's it, you're you're basically building a data warehouse around this one thing, 
And we've seen how rigid the data warehouse is. So you've got a new angle on the customer. You have to redesign every like, no, like you're you're tightly coupling yourself to too many things. It's just, yeah, no. I'm I'm with you on on a lot of that stuff because I just think it's we try too hard on a lot of these things because it's like, wouldn't this be amazing if we had all of this in this way, in this and it's like, okay, but you know, A and B and C person want to look at it from different angles. So not only do you have to build, you have to build everything and that it can, it can deal with every angle. So, um, this, this has been, uh, so opening, and it's, it's reflected back on a lot of these conversations. Um, I mean, I think we could talk for five more hours, but I, I want to be, I want to be cognizant of time and, and, uh, let you, uh, you know, get, start heading towards uh, bedtime and everything like that. Um, is there anything we, we didn't cover? Um, I, we were going to talk a little bit about like, getting people to to stop talking and just start doing but like yeah. uh, so is there anything that you'd like to wrap up kind of maybe around that or about anything that we we talked about kind of put a button on the episode anything that you, you've got some advice for folks yeah so um maybe just one piece of um advice i would say is it's great to be a perfectionist but you know don't let perfection kind of stand in the way and and sometimes as a culture, as as people who work with data, we do want to be perfect in a lot of things because that's the outcome you're driving for. Um, but that shouldn't stop us from getting started. So I'm a great, I mean, I'm a big advocate for this MVP approach, but make sure your MVP is truly MVP and vertically sliced, right? Please don't forget that it's a vertical slice that runs across all layers. So when we say data mesh and we say we have the four founding principles of it, think of an MVP that's touching all these four principles, right? Even if it's the bare minimum, whatever holds true in your domain, just do the basic vertical sliced MVP for each. And and that's, I think, my message. What's your your P and the minimum? It's minimum viable what? Like, are you trying to prove out the data, data set? Yeah. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I wouldn't say data set. I would say the minimum amount of operating model governance that has to exist, the minimum um, amount of data products that you have to get out for a given use case, the minimum amount of platform that's needed to support it, the minimum amount of uh, federated computation governance around it, you know, like just touch upon your each of your principles and think of it as the the minimum that is needed for each of this to get value out. Yeah, Sunny Jaisingani and uh, Simon Massey, when they were on, were talking about the cost of change with cloud has has just absolutely plummeted, right? And so we yeah. need to get out of that perfectionist approach, and and that we yeah. need to think about what are we trying to prove out, and and how can we get to proving out? And it's okay to 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 look for things and to make a bet and be wrong on that. Yeah. That's what a bet is, right? You're yeah. you're saying. I think that this is going to work out. And if it doesn't, like, you know, try and set yourself up to be correct on your bets. But outside of that, eh, right? Like we're, we're able to make, to make these bets. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I really like the, the, the slicing that you're talking about of like, people are trying to think of, okay, I'm just going to build out all of my platform ahead, or I'm going to do all of these things ahead. And it's like, then they're not tested and you've got, it's kind of like, um, you know, I, you want to think of it as more of a four-legged animal, but you know, if you're a person and you're like, 
one of your arms is super strong and none of your legs or your other arm is. Yeah. And you think about that, like for, you know, my dog back there, if just one of her legs was really, really well developed and none of the other ones were like, that wouldn't work very well. So like, think about like building up that strength together and that you're testing it, that you're actually walking. Yeah. You're not just sitting there and doing curls and not moving around and doing things. Absolutely, yeah. So um, now I'm just imagining my dog doing weightlifting. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm sure there's going to be lots of people that want to chat with you after this. Um, where is the best place to do that? What's the What do you want people reaching out about? Yeah, I think um, when it comes to um, data mesh or product thinking in the data space, then I I would love to also like talk to different people about their opinions. LinkedIn is the space that I'm most active on. Um, Twitter makes me sad and upset, and therefore I try and stay away from that. Um, yeah, so LinkedIn would be the space, but yeah, you can also um, easily reach out to me on, because um, I work for a company called ThoughtWorks, and so it's just amara.gafo at thoughtworks.com if you just want to drop me an email, and yeah, I could get back to you as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll drop links to that stuff in, in the show notes to make it easy for folks, and but again, Amara, thank you so much for the time today. This was a, a phenomenal conversation. It's going to be very helpful to a lot of folks. So thank you for that. And uh, as well, thank you everyone out there for listening. Yeah, appreciate that, Scott. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Amara Gafur, Principal Business Analyst at ThoughtWorks. You can find a link to her LinkedIn and email, as well as the four articles she co-authored on her learnings working with Roche in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.